Welcome to Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast, where we talk about all things solo. And yes, some Beatles definitely uh, comes in there as well. Um, <laughs> we thank you for joining us tonight. We have got a full show planned. We got a lot of discussion. So thank you for joining us. And we, of course, want you to uh, do contribute to the conversation. Tonight's topic is going to be about uh, John Lennon's main influences on his life, on his artistry, uh, namely Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney. So it's going to be a fascinating topic. But uh, we will get to that in a little bit. Uh, we have news to cover, and I'm going to give you a brief report on a recent Paul McCartney concert I've seen. So let's get to it. First of all, my name is Kid O'Toole. I am the author of Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, and Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop. And I am so lucky to be hosting this show twice monthly with these wonderful gentlemen who are our friends, colleagues, experts, you name it. So let me, uh, let me introduce everybody. First off, he is the author of so many books, um, <laughs> and uh, be, take up half the show to list all the books, but they're all wonderful, including the two-volume uh, biography of George Martin, um, uh, max, Maximum Volume and Sound Pictures, um, and he has a book coming out this October, I, I believe, um, about uh, the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. I know we're all looking forward to that. He is the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monmouth University, and he is a huge fan of cats and 3D photography. So <laughs> welcome, Dr. Ken Womack. Hey, Ken. Hey, Kit. Very nice to see you. Good to see you. All right. <laughs> Next up, we've got, uh, you know him, you love him. He's the uh, co-host of the popular Paul McCartney podcast, Two Legs, and he is one of the biggest vinyl collectors I've ever met. If you want to know about vinyl, you ask this guy. So say hello to Mr. Tom Hanyadi. Hey, Tom. Hi, Kit. Hi, everybody. And Ken Womack, I'm really looking forward to I Am Lemonade Lucy. I was going to pick that up and uh, give that a read. I'm, you know, he's not just a Beatles author. He's also an author of many different topics. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And last but definitely not least, he is uh, a well-known person in the Beatles uh, world. He is the longtime host of the syndicated radio show, Every Little Thing, as well as the co-host of the very popular podcast, Things We Said Today, along with Darren DeVivo and Alan Cozen. And he is a walking encyclopedia of music. 
you want to know about chart positions, you want to know about <laughs> covers all, he's, he's your man. So, <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm thrilled to introduce my friend, Mr. Ken Michaels. Hey, Ken. Hey, Kit. I could be a walking encyclopedia because I have the Beatles encyclopedia oh. right by my side. That's Ken's book. Nice placements. <laughs> I wasn't even planning this. <laughs> Nicely played. We collaborate yeah. together. Yeah. Yep. Good. Well, we have a name where you would do that. It's, it's not beyond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we've got a full show tonight. So before we get to our main topic, let's get to the news. So... Ken, take it away. What news have you got for us? Okay, we start with uh, the very sad news that we do have to talk about, about the uh, passing of Dr. John, a legend in the music industry, who uh, whose music was tough to define because it crossed so many different musical genres, but he did record a good two dozen albums in his career. But for Beatles fans, we know him for working on three of Ringo's albums, the Goodnight Vienna album, also uh, Ringo's Rotogravure and the Bad Boy album. And of course he was there for Ringo's first all-star band tour. So a big part of Ringo's life. And uh, I always think about, cause I play the song quite quite frequently on, on every little thing, the song Ooh Wee from uh, Goodnight Vienna because not only did Dr. John play a, a piano solo in the middle, you can hear Ringo saying, that's my doctor playing. <laughs> so, uh, I, I love the song for that reason. And, um, you know, a big figure in the music industry, a big loss. Anybody want to comment on it? Well, I mean, he was really one of a kind. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it after he passed. I mean, who can you compare him to? I yeah. mean, it's, it's really, yes, he, he is directly, he directly descends from traditional New Orleans music, but he made it his own. He turned it into something else. You know, a kind of a collab, you know, just a just a mixture um, of all different styles. And, of course, his look, uh, you know, his stage presence, um, you know, as I said, he's, he's an original. I mean, there won't there will never be anyone else like him. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I can't say that I've been the biggest Dr. John fan. I do appreciate his work that he did with Ringo and the fact that he was a part of that first all star band. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the the movie The Last Waltz. I, I like the band. Mm. I um, I'm a fan of of the work he or the, the work he did for that, and I also appreciate the the work he did for the Art of McCartney. His cover of Let Him In, I think, was one of the one of, one of the better covers that were that were on that uh, on that compilation um, tribute CD. So. Wow, I've got to hear that. I'm not. Yeah, familiar I've with never it. heard that. Wow. Let Let Him In. Yeah, it is quite good, and of course, the loss for New Orleans and mm -hmm. uh, and that culture is is irreplaceable. Yep. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Other news: Back in 1998, there was a posthumous collection, a compilation of Linda McCartney music, of all of her recordings from the early 70s through the late 90s, called Wide Prairie, and now to celebrate the first UK showing of the Linda McCartney Retrospective, which is a look back at Linda's photography work curated by Paul, Mary, and Stella. Wide Prairie is being reissued on colored vinyl first. Tom already knew about this before anybody. Um, <laughs> this course. is exclusively for a month 
at the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in Glasgow, Scotland. And after that, to the general public on August the 2nd on colored vinyl. It'll be white and blue, yep. plus classic black vinyl, also digitally and on streaming services. And it will be the first time since 1998 that the album was made available on vinyl. I haven't heard anything about, about CD, though. Mm. Okay. All right. Really good collection. It's everything yeah. you ever want on one CD from Living mm -hmm. the Party. The songs yeah. that she sang, some of them she wrote with Paul. Really good. All the wing stuff, everything throughout the years, three decades worth right there. Um, how's this for a pleasant surprise? The Queen of England's birthday honors were announced a few weeks ago, and both Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, and Elvis Costello were among the recipients. Mm -hmm. Now, Elvis will be getting an OBE for services to music in a career spanning more than 40 years. Mike McCartney will be getting a BEM, which is British Empire Medal, for his services to the community in Merseyside. Mike has had a career with the comedy trio The Scaffold, also carved out a niche as a very talented photographer. And this will be a big year for Mike because as we've been talking about it, the McGear album is about to be reissued. It's now been delayed again. <laughs> yeah. To uh, July the 19th, it's the, the full album of McGear, which came out in 1974, which has Paul all over it and Members of Wings, an album of outtakes along with that, and a DVD with um, a couple of interviews with Mike McCartney on there and the video for Leave It. Mm -hmm. So uh, big year for Mike McCartney. Also, Mark Lewison, our good friend, is going to do a tour of the UK which will be called Hornsey Road, uh, The Surprises and Delights of Abbey Road, the Beatles' final album, 50 Years On. This will be a two-hour live theater presentation with stories behind the songs and uh, the momentous events that went on in the studio while recording the album. The tour's website is hornseyroad.net. I'll spell that for you, H-O-R-N-S-E-Y-R-O-A-D.net. The tour starts September 18th, runs through December the 4th, 21 dates, all in the UK so far. Yeah. If it's if it's anything like that White Album, um, you know, presentation that he did, everybody that's going there is going to get, is, is up for a really nice treat. I mean, that presentation he did, I'm sure what, what it ended up lasting three hours and it was supposed to be two and it just right. kept going, going on and on and on. All this wealth of information that we got amazing. from that presentation was just amazing. And I'm so envious of everybody that gets to, you know, because there's no U.S. states. It's all overseas, right, Ken? It's all the U.K. right now. I think they'll just be testing the waters. Just to see if if it does well, and then hopefully, I'd I'd love to see it come yeah. over here in the U.S. But yeah, yes, that, if you're watching or listening to this, please bring this to the U.S. <laughs> I mean, I think you'll get a very good response here. And on my podcast, things we said today, I already offered Mark my house if he needs it. <laughs> right. So I was Hi. asking, why why shouldn't it be all the homes of co-hosts of Beetle podcast shows? There you go. Yeah. I think that would work really well. Yeah. Other news in celebration of John and Yoko's public debut concert, Cambridge 1969, a Yoko Ono art exhibit called Sky Pieces will be running at the Hyang Gallery. That's at Downing College in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a collection of 90 of her early, recent, and new works 
with new pieces concerning the sky. This will work well in our conversation in a few moments. Uh, <laughs> some of them are participatory and evolves. They evolve as the exhibition unfolds. The centerpiece is called Sky TV, which is a closed circuit camera that will record the sky, transmitting real-time views through a network of 25 television monitors into the gallery. There'll be screenings of her films Fly and Apotheosis, both co-directed by John Lennon. There'll be a day-long symposium with international scholars exploring the many facets of Yoko's work to date. And that will run, it's already running, June 15th through October the 6th. All right. Today marks the 10th anniversary of Meat Free Monday, a campaign started by Paul, Mary, and Stella McCartney to get the uh, world to take one day out of the week and go meatless to help save animals and save climate change. And now there's a new video online with Paul, Ringo's in it, Mary, Tom Hanks, Alec Baldwin, and Kevin Nealon. There's also a separate one that Paul made all by himself where mm -hmm. he's strumming the guitar talking about it. Um, I know some of our Beatle fans are fans of Harry Nilsson, and I want to let you know there's a new tribute album to Harry Nilsson coming out June the 21st called This is the Town, a tribute to Harry Nilsson, Volume 2, on the label Royal Potato Family. <laughs> uh, it has 14 cover versions of Nilsson music from the likes of Cheap Trick, Martha Wainwright, Laura Ruth Ward. The label put out a tribute album for Harry with the same title, This is the Town, Volume 1 in 2014. Uh, Danny Harrison is in the news. As we know, he's about to go on tour with Jeff Lynn's ELO. He just posted on, uh, online on his Facebook page a performance. It's about an hour long with his band performing songs from his solo album In Parallel. It's called In Paralive, and it's still uh, online. And I believe I've shared it. I have shared it on my Facebook page, I think I put it on our page, but you might want to check it out if you want to see Danny in action with uh, all of his songs with this band. And of course, let's uh, end our news by saying a very happy birthday to Paul McCartney, who tomorrow mm -hmm. turns 77, believe it or not. Wow. Happy wow. birthday, Paul. Wow. And speaking of Paul, <laughs> How's this for a segue? <laughs> yes, Kid went to see him. Kid went to see him in concert. So we want to hear your report. Well, it was, um, you know, it, it was. He he never disappoints. I mean, you know, he he played to. I would say if it wasn't a full house, it was darn close. I mean, you know, I only saw like a you know few seats around me that were empty. Um, it was. Uh, you know, just a, one of he didn't really vary from his set list from other shows, except uh, for the second track, uh, second number, he played Save Us instead of Junior's Farm, mm -hmm. uh, which I was a little a little disappointed because I, I love Junior's Farm, so mm -hmm. I, I would have loved to have heard that. I don't know why he switched it out. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Ed Chen, who hosts uh, what the When They Was Fab podcast, said, did, did Madison, Wisconsin, have any like a connection to save us? Is that why he played it? No, not that I'm aware of. There's no connection. So just apparently felt like doing that uh, little yeah. fireman that night. Yeah, that, that makes me nervous now. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> <laughs> he, he does a little tweaking at that time. Yeah. 
that. Mm-hmm. The rest of the the set list was was pretty you know pretty much standard. Um, I would say uh, two of my favorite moments were, even though I've seen him do hello uh, um, here today, excuse me, uh, like you know number of times. Um, it was particularly moving that night. Um, and what was really amazing was this was a huge venue where I saw him. I mean, really huge. And when he was playing that, you could hear a pin drop mm. in, the, in the place. No woos or I love you, Pauls, or anything like that. Mm. I mean, it was just silent. I've, I've never been to a concert that size where, I, you know, seeing someone have that kind of command over mm. the audience. I mean, that, that just knocked me out. I, I, I was really moved. And, you know, everybody talks about the voice. The voice is what it is. Um, you know, but in that song, uh, for here today, you know, the by sounding a little more fragile, that actually just added to the poignancy of, of that track. I right. mean, I you know, it just really did. Uh, and so even though I've, I've seen him do that a number of times, it, it was very moving. You know, that was really moving performance. And uh, Helder Skelter, I mean, the, the crowd just went nuts. Uh, that, I mean, it's just so fun to watch this almost 77-year-old, you know, <laughs> doing Helder Skelter. I mean, it's it's just a treat. Now, I don't remember if, if uh, Ken and Tom, you asked me this off-camera last week or, or, or last episode or if we talked about this on camera, but you did ask, so what was the bathroom run song or beer run song of the concert the answer is my valentine mm-hmm. yeah my valentine was by far i thought it was going to be an egypt station track um you know that was my guess no it was my valentine a number of people you know walked out during that so i don't know i i wonder how much longer he's going to keep it in i i you know who knows but uh, but yeah that was by far the beer yeah. runs and on. he didn't do it with the megaphone like he did for the uh what was what uh grand central station yeah grand central station yeah. nope, I he just did once it he did that, I, yeah, I thought he would have continued doing that because i thought that was kind of unique uh add-on to uh, to that song yeah no he didn't now i i almost neglected to mention the horns what a welcome addition that is um you know we, i know a number of us have been you know, for years saying, bring back the horns. And thankfully he did, and boy, did they make a difference. Um, you know, hearing, hear there, or not hear there and everywhere, um, got to get you into my life, mm. hearing the real horns, wow. <laughs> and letting go, that yeah. was another highlight, hearing the horns on letting go. I had heard somebody posted a Facebook uh, video of those, and of that, uh, one of the performances, and that really, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. That didn't disappoint. So I, the only thing I would say is I, I hope uh, in future tours he might add like one or two more horns. I'd love to hear them a bit more and really have them, in, you know, really in the forefront. Uh, but to have any at all is is just such a, you know, such a, a treat. So, you know, he, he just, he knows how to put on a great show. Uh, of course, I recommend if those of you watching haven't seen him yet, you know, go see him. And, you know, it's a, it's a great time and you will find yourself moved at moments where you're, you'll be kind of surprised where you think huh. I've heard this song so many times, how can I possibly, you mm. know, and, and yet, Darn it, he pulls it yeah. off every time. 
you just you just get caught up in the moment i think you know and like you said i mean yeah he's played these songs over and over again but it doesn't matter you're there and uh it's you know you feel the energy from the rest of the crowd and it's that it's the moment you know it's knowing that you're in the presence of this greatness yeah. and the history and and everything that he brings to it and yeah the whole the whole thing about the horns Kit, I'm right with you. There have been fans out there who have been talking about this since Wings Over America, yes. that they want horns back again. And as great as Wix is, it's not the same thing getting the horn sound on a, a synthesizer as it is with the real thing. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I will say, if you take a look at the set list uh, from show to show, he has a habit, and he's been doing this for years, usually the second, sometimes the fourth song, he switches from show to show, you know? So if you see two shows in a row, it's never exactly the same. There might be one or two songs different, you know? So like you said, Junior's Farm and Save Us, he flip-flops with them. Can't Buy Me Love is a song that he switches, I think, with Got to Get You Into My Life. Okay, so, yeah, I was um, gonna say, I don't remember him doing Can't Buy Me Love, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. he's been doing that at some of the shows here. So it's a good thing if you see two shows in a row. Because it's never right. exactly the same, but yeah. Right. So, so I guess the main question is then, Kit, were you able to get a hot dog during the show? <laughs> oh, there were, there were. Actually, you know what? That's really funny. And now that I think of it, because I did have, because this is Wisconsin, darn it, you're going to have um, a, like it was like a four cheese mac and cheese, and it did have some brats in it. So, mm. so they did serve some meat. So shame mm. on me. I shouldn't have done that. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Paul. <laughs> I forgot. Was it, was it on a Monday? And, uh, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was okay. the Thursday. Okay, right. good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> And by the way, when I've seen him in the last few years, when he does my Valentine, a lot of people leave during that song. But so I I've always said it has nothing to do with the quality of the song. It has to do with the familiarity of it. And if you need to take a bathroom break, you're going to do it during a song that that you don't know, more so yep. than one that you're familiar with. So I saw people get, get up to leave during In Spite of All the Danger at one of my shows. And mm -hmm. even though it had all that history behind it, how important that song was, a lot of fans didn't know about yeah. that song. So it's just the way it is. The worst experience I had as far as that goes is I was up in the rafters, Janine and I were, in I guess 2005 uh, on that tour. And uh, Blackbird uh, had just, was just about to start. And this fellow who was sitting on the other side of us um, got up to leave. And I said, what are you doing? It's, he's gonna play Blackbird. <laughs> you know, come on, this is a big moment. And uh, he went away, and then he came back right as Blackbird ended, and he had the giant Twix bar. <laughs> and I've, I've thought about that a lot, because it's as though that need for the giant Twix bar was more important than hearing Blackbird. And that oh, giant Twix bar probably cost as much as the ticket did. <laughs> I doubt that, but it was still... Um, it was a value proposition. It was as though he suddenly had to have the, that Twix. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes like people are at their home, right? And they're watching a show, except they happen to be out, in this case, in D.C. at, uh, at this huge arena. 
<laughs> that is wow. Oh, that that is crazy. Well, yeah. What do you got? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, oh, by the way, a few people have uh, put it uh, before we leave this topic. People have been uh, adding their own uh, the the shows we've seen what the bathroom break songs were. Uh, mean our pal, mean Mr. Mayo. Hey, Joe. Hello. Uh, hello. We got married. Yep, we got married. Uh, that's a shame. That's a yeah. Great I song. like that yeah. song. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's yeah. Uh, that's Love cool. me do is a good one to leave during. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yep. That was. I don't. I didn't see as many leave for that. Um, let's see. We've no, got. P.S. Love me do. Oh, the P.S. Love oh, me do. Okay. Oh, P.S. Love me <laughs> do. Oh, I was like, well, I, you know, it's not one of my all-time favorite. I, mean, I wouldn't leave. You know. Oh, P.S. Love me do. Yes, I would. Even I would yeah. leave. <laughs> huh. uh, let's see. We've got peace in the neighborhood. Which I've actually always kind of liked that song. I love that one. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, it's not one of his top you know five best songs or anything but it's, it's kind of good and sea moon that's one that i boy paul loves that song he just will not stop playing I it, love it. do you yeah mm. he does it a lot in sound checks now i've yeah. noticed hmm. yeah i do not want to be all seven mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably a favorite of his and linda's yeah. No, and that's that's why he keeps doing it at sound checks, you know. And he has done it in concert too. Yep, so. that's yeah. true. Oh, dear, my buddy uh, Tom uh, Tom Green from uh, from Dubuque, Iowa, said I saw him at the United Center in Chicago in two thousand two. So did I. Uh, and people would uh, leave during Vanilla Sky. Yeah, that's kind of true. I do mm. sort of remember. Yeah, that was a bathroom break song at the time. Again, less familiar songs. Yep. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say it's a reflection of the quality. Yeah, that's that's true. So, mm. yep. except in the case of P.S. Love Me Do. <laughs> that's right. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, he, he pushed it with that one. So <laughs> he really pushed bit. it. Okay. <laughs> oh man! So yes. Uh, so as I said, if you haven't gone already. Go to go to his current show. Of course, you'll have a great time. Um, and uh, and as, as I mentioned, you'll you'll be moved to some parts that you'll be kind of surprised that you're still moved by them. It's uh, it's really uh, yeah, just a great show. Uh, all right, let's move on to our main topic. Um, and uh, Ken, why don't you introduce the topic which a a viewer sent in to us. Yeah, uh, if you go back to our show number 14, and we always love to read our comments as we're doing the show here, the listener comments, and the ones that we get after the show. But um, we were talking about the new John and Yoko documentary, Above Us Only Sky, and I made the comment that I think that Yoko is the biggest influence ever on John Lennon's life. Well, one of our viewers wrote in, and this viewer's name is David Jackson. Don't know if you're watching, David. But um, he wrote in and he said, Paul McCartney was the biggest influence on John Lennon and vice versa. When I saw this comment, I thought, this might make a good debate here. So I asked my three co-hosts and they said yes. So I think um, this can make a very interesting conversation between Paul and Yoko and, and who was the bigger influence on John. 
All right. And so uh, now before we we start uh, start this, I I you know, the viewers we have right now, I know many of them, so I know they're they're not going to fall into this, but uh we're just saying, you know, sometimes when t when it, a topic when it involves Yoko, it can invite some negative comments. So we're just asking uh please keep the discussion civil. We we want debate. We want uh, you know, if you want to disagree with us, but just uh, you know, st stay on the topic. Nothing nothing personal. So, yeah. all right, let's, uh, so let's start, so let's look at, let's look at John and Paul first. You know, they meet in 1957, they are brand new to, obviously, to, to music. I mean, they're still in their formative years and, and trying to learn. Now, um, Dr. Ken, um, how would you characterize, you know, what, what do you think the, the John and Paul part you know songwriting team partnership what do you think the dynamics were there do you think they learned from each other do you think one taught more you know taught one of the, the other more than the other did you know what what do you think was the kind of their their working relationship well it was it was clearly a dynamic partnership and it was i think importantly the first partnership uh which you know is significant because life is chronological <laughs> Um, and, it, you know, Paul didn't just bring um, himself to the equation. He brought a tradition that was developed by Jim Max Jazz Band. Uh, John didn't simply maybe glean off of Paul's more superior musical knowledge at that time. John brought, you know, his own flair for literature from his grade school education uh, that had a deep impact, you know, the use of irony and uh, John's affectation with language. So, you know, they were bringing a lot of, of tools uh, to that partnership. And I think probably most importantly, in some ways, when you think about a lot of the great art of the 20th century, they were bringing their youth, right? They had bundles of energy and they were willing to take risks uh, that other folks their age uh, were not. I mean, how many would not have gone to Hamburg, right? Um, so, they, you know, they're bringing a lot of elements in their respective quivers, and uh, it made all the difference, right? Um, it, they, they were able to weather several years of stop and starts with the Quarrymen and, and other different, uh, you know, band diffusions they had at that time, and it made all the difference. They, they stayed in it, uh, if you will. Um, and again, that can be attributable to youth, ambition. Um, uh, the fact that they were being together and they, they still believed that they would go to the toppermost of the poppermost. Um, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a rich dynamic for sure. Absolutely. And so, um, so, uh, so Ken M, how mm. do you think? <laughs> so we have this dynamic partnership, but what do you think John got out of this, this partnership? Well, you know, how do you think? he learned you know what did he learn do you think as a songwriter as an artist as i guess a person in general there's so much it's very complicated i just think yeah. that uh, both john and paul were already influenced by other artists especially 50s rock and roll right. and they brought that to the table especially john with uh, chuck berry in particular and and uh Buddy Holly was an influence, not just on John, but on Paul and all the Beatles, Carl Perkins, those people. Um, and I think just 
the mere fact that they were together all those years, they honed their craft together. But at the same time, I also think that the Beatles were made up of four strong individuals with individual styles that they all brought to the table. And um, John and Paul had individual styles when they started together, you know, and uh, they had already started writing songs on their own. Then they started writing songs together. But there's so much that they could have contributed and did contribute to each other's songs. But at the same time, on the songwriting end, I see them as being very individualistic. You know, I'm not saying that there wasn't an influence there. I think that they added so much to each other's songs in the Beatles through the arrangements, the instrumentation, Paul's bass line on, on John's songs, for example, the harmony work, you know, all that the Beatles brought to the table to the arrangements. But the songwriting, I think, was kind of built in early on. But there's all kinds of examples where they help each other out songwriting-wise. And I think that uh, one of the things that Paul has cited as being very important is the fact that they were not a formula band. There were songs that were 50-50 collaborations. There were songs that were 80% John, 20% Paul. It, whatever worked, they went with it. And that's something that carried on into their solo careers. Um, Paul, so much more than John, likes to bring up the Beatle years when he has a new album out and talk about what the Beatles did and their approaches to recording, um, that he and John would write a song and bring it to George and Ringo in the early years and they hadn't heard the song and they had to learn it quickly. That whole process was something that they did in the Beatle years that Paul tried to capture in his solo careers, but that's also something that he did with John, writing those songs together. They, they brought so much to each other that it's really hard to quantify. But I still think that, you know, even early on, if you listen to the early Beatles music, if let's just say there was an unreleased Lennon McCartney song that you never heard before, and you don't hear John sing it or you, hear, you don't hear Paul sing it, someone else is singing it, somehow you can tell whether John wrote it or Paul wrote it. They still had individual styles from the very beginning. But they added a lot to each other's songs in so many different ways. And, you know, I can pinpoint certain things like, for example, um, you know, I Am the Walrus is a song that has stream of consciousness lyrics. I think Paul used that same approach with the song, Talk More Talk. Did he do that because John did it? Was he influenced by John? He never influenced, he never admitted that. But I think in so many different ways, counter melodies they worked on together. Um, and that showed in a lot of Paul's solo music. Was that a John influence? You don't really know for sure. They brought all their um, influences together, especially the 50s rock and roll. And both John and Paul did like pre-rock and roll too. You know, and um, you combine all that and you've got this incredible catalog where you really can't, you can't say with every single song what the, what the influence was, you know, but you know that just the mere fact that they were there together, working on it together, perfecting it and blossoming and growing as it went along, that made Paul a huge influence anyway on John and vice versa. Absolutely. Tom, what, uh, what do you think? Yeah. Um, between, you know, the, the Ken's, you know, Ken, you know, Womack said, you know, their ambition and, and their 
you know, they're motiv they're motivated, and and Ken Michael said, you know, they were already influenced with that style of music. So I think those two things combined were what really formed that that partnership. They had something that they that they related to, and and then it just blossomed from there. And then then each other helped each other with their weaknesses. Whereas like John may may not have you know played the you know guitar like a banjo, and maybe you know Paul you know helped them out and you know influenced them to be a better player. Or there were. John might have been stronger lyrically at the time, and then maybe you know he you know helped you know influence you know Paul to be a stronger songwriter. I mean, it, but there's just so many you know things like Ken said. I mean, you really don't can't pinpoint you know influences, but the fact that you know they stuck together during those early years. I mean, how many times were they close to? You know they weren't finding any gigs for a while. They could have separated, but they kept working, and and it was the influence I think of each other that that kept that that you know damn it dynamic duel together. And the fact that they loved the music, and the fact that I think that they were getting better, and then especially you know working all those years in Hamburg, and you know where I think John had a stronger stage presence maybe than Paul, and then Paul may have been influenced by you know by that, and then maybe you know. You know, Paul had a little bit more, you know, musicality, you know, with with his playing, and then John was influenced, you know, to be better in that way. But I I think that, um, you know, when you look at it, it's it's clear that at that point in time, that they were both, you know, a tight unit and very influenced by each other. Mm -hmm. Just a Oh, yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as, as I was thinking uh, about this topic, you know, I was thinking about the ways, uh, kind of like what uh, I think it was Tom Green said earlier here, which was, you know, that Paul kind of made John step it up. And I mean, in a way, I, I think that's true. I also think he, and I think they had, you know, this effect on each other, that they encouraged each other to try new things. Like, you know, Paul loved character pieces. You know, for mm -hmm. example, you know, of course, you know, Eleanor Rigby and, and so forth and, you know, writing in the third person. And John finally, you know, tried his hand at it with, you know, Nowhere Man. Um, of course, later on, Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam. I mean, you know, and, and he did it in a, in a different way. Uh, perhaps than Paul, and, and a little bit, bit more humorous uh, in the in the case of the latter two songs, but um, but I think you know he he was trying also uh, a song like um, you know in my life where he really uh, you know bared his soul a, a bit more, but but in a way that it was it was commercial, but but still high art, you know, and I think Paul that may have been part of the influence that Paul had on him that, you know, encouraging him to write from different perspectives and also from, uh, you know, thinking about it from, you know, how will this appeal to a mass audience uh, without sacrificing, you know, too much, <laughs> you know, we don't, you don't want to dumb it down, but you want to make it accessible to, mm -hmm. to as many people as, uh, as possible. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure, um, uh, uh, Ken uh, Womack, do you think, uh, I mean, do you think there are specific techniques that Paul may have, you know, taught John or somehow influenced him to, to try, as I've been trying to think of other examples? Well, it's such a, you know, in, in a lot of ways, they, they created a dynamic 
inter-influence or intra-influence, if you will, by being present at that very fecund time, right? Um, you know, that was enormous um, in terms of their growth. And of course, it was a spotty growth at a certain point. Um, they had unparalleled fame, which created its own kind of wedges, different sort of family lives and structures. Um, you know, so it's it becomes easy to dismiss them as uh, being very individualistic at a certain point. But as, as they would both say, you know, it, it was sometimes the little things that made all the difference. The smoky electric piano on Come Together, right, uh, that John valued, or that amazing um, Epiphone Casino electric guitar solo that John Lennon plays on Honey Pie. You know, they were both really the little touches that made those songs extra special. You know, I can't get over that. Um, I listen to it quite often. Uh, just by itself, that beautiful little solo John plays on that song, it sounds like a clarinet, you know. In fact, he's moving in and out of the woodwinds with ease, the way he works the, the casino. Um, you know, that, that's what they do for each other. Um, and uh, those made all the difference in those later songs to my ears. Yeah, I mean, yeah. something like probably the, the tape loops in, in, in uh, Tomorrow Never Knows or, you know, John's yeah. you know, contribution to songs like She's Living Home and, and Getting Better, you know, those little, you know, musical and, and lyrically, you know, those, those contributions, I think both, you know, helped and influenced each other grow as artists as well. Also, you mentioned Come Together, the bass line from Paul is as much a part of that song as the song. Sure. You know, or the introduction that Paul brought uh, on the Mellotron for Strawberry Fields Forever. That was his idea, you know. Um, but there you're talking about what you're bringing with the instruments and what you're playing as opposed to the songwriting, which is a separate thing too. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it's a complicated thing. <laughs> and also there was the competitiveness between the two of them. And it was a healthy competition and it spurred each other on to create some of their greatest songs. I mean, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, a lot of people rate as possibly their greatest single. Hey June and Revolution, you know, you know, writing them at the same time. What one guy did, the other one bounced off of, and they wanted to, you know, up their game. So I think in that way, it was definitely an influence in that way. Yep. Yeah, I I agree. You know, and uh, before I lose lose my my terrible memory, would drop this, but you know, as far as intellectual or craft influences, I think mm. Paul deserves a lot of credit for. The, the relationships he forged in literary London in the mid 1960s that John then directly benefited from. Yeah. The yeah. end of the shop, yeah, John right. Dunbar, right. the whole art collective. Um, you know, that was coming by way of Paul, and it was enormous for John uh, yeah. to have that outlet, particularly in a time, you know, right after or even during the fat Elvis period, as Lennon would call it. Paul was his, you know, his intellectual connection and uh, was very generous about being so. In fact, it was that intellectual connection that leads him to the other influencer we're going to talk today. Right. Talk about today. You know, it's, uh, it's a huge conduit. And it was McCartney in that mid-period uh, saying, remember, I love the quote, I vaguely mind what anyone knowing things I don't know about. And so quite suddenly... You know, he's schooling himself in uh, in literature, and Paul is stretching his chops in a lot of ways. And, of course, part of that is probably going back many years to the influence from John 
when he cared a little bit more about <laughs> that aspect of their studies. Yeah. Um, that's such a vital period and made such a difference. I mean, for the rest of John's life, mm -hmm. he is thinking about uh, some of the uh, intellectual freight that he picked up during that mid-60s period. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because you can read uh, about that here in the uh, the Zappel Diaries by uh, by Barry Miles. It's a pretty good book about uh, you know all that you know the Zappel years and and all of the you know the things that Paul was like you said learning about all the avant-garde stuff that Paul was discovering while he was in you know London and then you know John you know you know being um, uh, was he out not necessarily in London oh, in the yeah yeah so you know him you know. Bringing all that information back to John. I mean, it's it's. Um, you well, know, you know, what's amazing about that though is they were so privileged, right? Given mm -hmm. the quality and, and different nature of their fame, that they could do these things uh, mm -hmm. where other people, you know, were having to hustle. Uh, the lesser-known acts had broken down. They were on the cabaret circuit by that point. These guys were very privileged uh, to be able to do that, um, and it again, it was an intra influence, right? Paul knew to do that because of that connection they've been having for so right. very long, I would argue. But that's you know, it's kind of interesting, and I, I brought this up a few times on the other podcast, Things We Said Today. It is really fascinating that while Paul was studying avant-garde stuff, and he was into all this before John, and then John got into it, why didn't the two of them do more work <laughs> in that area instead of John going right to Yoko with it? You know? Well, yeah. Well, that's to quote, to that's, quote Alan Saunders, "Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans." <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Oh well, since since you mentioned Yoko, this is a a good segue here. All right, so we've talked about ways that that Paul and and John worked together, perhaps what they taught each other. They're you know the complicated dynamics. So let's move on to Yoko now. John, you know, meets Yoko for the first time in in '66, um, and you know, starts uh, you know learning more. Of course, we know the story about him going up the uh, step ladder with the magnifying glass and seeing the word "yes" on the ceiling, and and you know, he's yeah, there there you go, and uh, and he. <laughs> Ken is Ken is illustrating. For those who are listening, Ken is illustrating the moment. He's he's reenacting it. Um, and so, you know, so what? How do you think his, you know, her or actually her influence differs? <laughs> okay, John just wrote, yes. There you go. <laughs> yes is the answer. Yes is the answer. Well, and that's a that's a good segment. You know, segue. How did Yoko? influence uh, his music because to me her, her you know fingerprints are all over uh, you know his his 70s stuff I mean you know up until his death I I think you you can just hear it in lyrics in in more you know experimental things he's trying I mean the Newtopian national anthem come on that's Yoko mm -hmm. I mean you know something like that so what 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 uh, what do you guys think so Tom let's uh, let's start with you yeah I mean I think it all starts with yes it's that positive you know, feedback that maybe he was looking for. And yeah, I mean, I think Womack mentioned it earlier that you know, maybe he was losing interest in what he was doing and he needed another outlet. And maybe that's why he didn't, you know, contri or, or contribute, you know, more with, with Paul in that avant-garde, um, you know, forum. And, you know, 
all roads to Yoko, I think, start with Paul. You know, I mean, Paul was the one that, you know, inter probably introduced, you, you know, you know, Yoko's work to, to John. And so with that being said, I think the, I think the have bigger influence on, on, on John might have been Yoko because of one thing that I think gets overlooked and it's the mother in, motherly influence that he had on, on, on John. I think growing up, I mean, was one of your biggest influences in, in your life is, is your mother, I think. And I think, you know, him having that with, with Yoko in his life, I think that became, you know, his, his influence for the rest of his life in so many ways, you know, including, you know, with, with art and life and, and his music. And um, there's just so many different things you can, you can say that, that she influenced, uh, you know, him by, but I think it all started with that word. Yes. And that, that positive outlook that maybe he was looking for. Yeah. And it's interesting when you mention of, you know, that uh, the mother figure, because of course, John called Yoko mother, um, yeah. you know, that was, uh, you know, and, and he definitely viewed her as sort of a, a sort of a guiding, you know, guiding light in, in a way. So uh, uh, Ken M, what do you, uh, what do you think? Well, I do believe that Yoko was the biggest influence ever on John's life because John was, at least I believe the type of person that grew restless very easily. He was always on to the next thing. And um, Yoko Ono defied convention. Everything that John had been doing, even though the Beatles were constantly evolving and growing and introducing new things in the studio. And the Beatles had 100% freedom by the time that they got to Sgt. Pepper. But with Yoko, it was, it was like freedom to infinity. Anything could be... Uh, considered art. If you want to create two minutes of silence on your album, that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a baby's heartbeat on your album, that's acceptable. And John was was just really drawn to this. He was completely fascinated by Yoko and the, the way her brain and her mind works. So many things that Yoko does to this day is unlike what anybody else comes up with, you know? And um, I think he was drawn to the fact that he didn't understand everything that Yoko was doing. He loved her artwork. He liked um, her music. He defended her music. And while a lot of people seem to think that all of her music was just screaming, well, you should listen to her whole catalog and you'll have a different point of view altogether. Right. Um, but he defended her work. He, he was involved with her films, like Fly, for example. Who else? Well, I guess this was in the avant-garde world. But for a woman to be naked with a fly crawling over her body and making a film out of that, or a film where you're, you're looking at people's rear ends naked and nothing else, I mean, that could only come out of the mind of John, but I mean, out of Yoko, but John supported that. And I think that she affected his music. I think his lyrics were much more personal and bare his soul more so than ever before. I can't say you have to give Yoko all the credit for that, but the mere fact that she shared, uh, you know, the, the primal scream therapy with John, um, I don't think you would have had a Plastic on Old Band album while well, both John and Yoko made their own, but that wouldn't have happened without Yoko's influence as well, especially with the lyrics. John just completely was as brutally honest about his life in a way that, you know, you never heard before. And I think that's with Yoko's influence. Also, you know, from watching this documentary, Above Us Only Sky, 
you saw how Yoko was involved with the whole creative process of the album and not just the song Imagine, which was a big influence. You listen to a song like Cold Turkey, the screaming and the groaning from John at the end. I had that on my notes. Yeah, it's very, that's it Yoko. Be, yeah, it has to be a Yoko influence, you know? You know, so it's all there. And the fact that um, he made Sometime in New York City, an album that was half John, half Yoko. They wrote songs together. Uh, a few of the songs from John have a, an oriental feel to it, like Oh My Love, which is a co-write with Yoko. I think Beautiful Boy has that feeling to it as well. And Double Fantasy and posthumously Milk and Honey were half and half, John and Yoko. Um, they planned on touring together in 1972 with Elephant Memory, John and Yoko, with Yoko songs. They also planned on touring together after Double Fantasy came out. So he was always thinking about partnering with Yoko. She wasn't just his wife to him. She was a creative partner through most of everything that, that he did. Right. Yep, absolutely. And and uh, Ken, we had a comment down here, Harry Benson, um, and he said that uh, that the documentary "Above Us Only Sky," which we've talked about in a in a previous episode, um, and uh, he mentioned how surprised he was that Yoko was so involved in the making of the Imagine album and, and really, you know, kind of made him rethink, uh, you know, her role. So, uh, so Dr. Ken, were you surprised at the amount of involvement she had in the album or was it something that you kind of suspected? No, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, uh, I, I think that that was in many ways, that was their heyday, that period. Um, you know, it's a very different partnership, the way you move through the 70s. Um, I think we, we should be honest that uh, she had an enormous influence, really, even on the Beatles in 1968 and 69, in very good ways, uh, and, and gave us, uh, even from the sidelines and sometimes in the throes of the band, um, she helped to create spaces of creativity that I think are very important. Having said that, um, I, you know, uh, while there is so much to adore from John Lennon's solo catalog, uh, there is uh, a, a very different level of uh, quality when you look at pure aesthetics um, that does not have a lasting uh, mark from the 1970s. Um, so, you know, I, I think we, to me, because of that, um, I think the quality of the, uh, and, and aesthetics are ultimately how we measure great art. Um, I think that's what's going to win out. And, you know, the, the relationship with Paul McCartney and what they created is hard to compare to anything and the very, for the very sheer reason that it's an outlier, right? It is not like anything else. Um, and uh, that's not to say that the Lennon Ono <laughs> was like anything else either, but aesthetically, it's not of the same quality. I do find it interesting, as one of the, our, our, our listeners, viewers, noted earlier, that it was coming up that sort of brought John out of his shell. Um, and uh, I think he was rethinking that, that part of his life and that partnership in the last months of his life. There's a, a, a heartbreaking moment during an interview, I think in uh, September 1980 or October, where John is talking about Paul and calling him my dear one. Uh, that just brings a tear to you, his eye, uh, my eye. <laughs> John was a cry. The tears were misplaced as tears go by. Um, 
wrong band. But um, you know, it's it's fun to have these conversations. But I don't know that that history will have such a problem with this uh, right. kind of issue. And of course, and I've said this before, and this is the great challenge um, whenever we talk about anything to do with the Beatles after December eighth, nineteen eighty. Uh, here we have uh, a person who was yanked out of the world, right? Um, so these are always unfinished, unsettled questions. They can't be solved and resolved. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult issue to fathom, um, particularly when you look at the song that they were working on completing that very night. I think Walking on Thin Ice was yeah. um, such a harbinger of so many interesting things to come. I, I spent the weekend listening to all of the different takes of it and... and and sort of tracing its evolution from the Double Fantasy Sessions and Yoko's poem to those very last uh, moments in the studio. And it's really remarkable, um, the kind of uh, artistry that was going into that recording. Right. Um, it, it would have been so damned interesting to see where that was going to go. And right. that one of the thousands of things uh, of which we were robbed on that terrible evening. Right. Yeah. That's, that's you know, right. I, yeah. If, if Paul was the biggest influence, why didn't why didn't they make that you know the writing sessions that they were supposed to have in '75 work? Yeah, I know they had that little you know uh, you know snort and, and snore or whatever you call it you know <laughs> moment in the in the studio, but I mean that wasn't nothing. I mean, yeah. but and here he is. He goes back to Yoko instead of you know reforming his you know this relation this great you know dynamic duo relationship he had with paul you know well let's be frank at that point you know this could take us into territory for another show that maybe we don't want to change <laughs> some of the stuff that like it or not kit was warning us about earlier and you know once you start to draw on historical in some cases conjecture in other cases fact um you know, uh, we have to start drawing very different lines around this. So I was trying to stay in the aesthetic. Yeah. Um, Paul really wanted to go. Sorry, John really wanted to go to New Orleans, though. I, I'm pretty confident about that. Right. <laughs> Can I just say, but I mean, it was also Paul's influence that helped, you know, get John and Yoko back together. So mm -hmm. exactly. maybe, maybe John wanted to see Dr. John. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right. Yeah. Ken, you yeah. wanted to add something. Uh, I, Ken, I, just wanted to say I respectfully disagree with Ken W. about John Lennon's solo work. I do think that uh, so much of it is highly underrated. And even though John would cite Plastic on a Band, Imagine, and Double Fantasy as among his best works, I think Mind Games and Walls and Bridges were very strong albums. And I like most of his stuff on Sometime in New York City. I think it's uh, a really powerful, although way too short catalog from his solo career. I also think that people make way too big a deal out of maybe a couple of sentences that John said about coming up. I mean, he was impressed with Paul's song, but I don't think that that really, in no way single-handedly, that that convinced him to go back into music. He was listening to other music at the time, as he said in, in Playboy with Blondie and the Talking Heads and Bruce Springsteen and the Cars and all this other music. And I think he was gonna get back into music regardless of coming up being a, a single on the charts at the time that he liked. Yeah, it may have also awakened his, his competitive streak, you know, that, that Paul had such a big hit and, you know, he thought, okay, now I've, you know, I've got to step it up. So it, it could have been uh, that as well. So, boy, this is, this is a big topic. So, uh, 
you know, it was just the quality of coming up. We, I mean, we have to connect that with something John had said earlier, uh -huh. which was very much about um, seeing Paul push the boundaries a little bit. And that inspired him as much as anything else, you know, that uh, I believe the exact quote was, um, <laughs> this song is driving me crackers. Um, which you could <laughs> different ways, uh, frankly, crackers could be good or bad. I like crackers. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, um, a fine cracker. You know, I don't like those bargain basement crackers. I like the good stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, from what I've, I've learned from talking to several of his contemporaries from that period, that what, uh, what he really liked was that Paul was doing something kind of un-Paul. Uh, particularly with the kind of avant-garde sound okay. he was getting, you know, and that's something to be inspired by. Okay. Well, uh, well, boy, there is probably we're going. We have to do uh, part two of, of this episode sometime. It's, there's so much to unpack. We have that mind games episode. <laughs> yeah, we had to do the mind games episode. Absolutely. When, and, whenever and you're I, ready. Whenever you're ready. Yep, let's do it. And, and I have to just give a shout out here to Tim Jackson, who says, coming up from Nebworth uh, 90 is a great version. Oh, yes, okay. it is, Tim. I I like it, too. So I have that album. So, all right. So, Nebworth. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was that was a pretty good version. Uh, all right. So to to kind of wrap this up, uh, let's let's kind of go around. So who do you think um, had the bigger uh, bigger influence on John was it Paul was it Yoko or can you not decide was it a, what's a mix of both so uh, so Ken M what uh, what do you think I'll go with Yoko Yoko you know, but no doubt about it I mean Paul was so massively important to John Lennon's life and vice versa nobody can deny that mm -hmm. so don't think I'm diminishing Paul in any way by saying Yoko being a bigger influence okay all right Tom, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm, unfortunately, I can't hear or see Ken and Ken Michaels anymore. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I heard you say that he said Yoko, and yes. you know, very again, you know, by you know an ounce, uh, you know, as of right now, at this point in my life, I'm going with Yoko as well. You know, with with the fact that you know he you know became a feminist because because of him i mean the art with with you know the bagism the peace i mean the, i mean yeah they've always been peace and love you know but uh, he really took they took it a step further um you know the uh, uh the art with you know the two versions uh, you know the cover and i mean i just you know and imagine the being the most iconic you know song Probably that he was his biggest influence from her was was Imagine, and and I think Ken Michael said it a couple weeks ago in our last episode. You know, two very popular radio stations. Their last song they played was was Imagine, and uh, and they also what play that song every year for his birthday, I believe. All the a lot of race, radio stations at the same time play his play play Imagine. Um, I mm. know they've done that in the past. I don't know if they've done that recently, but um, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I go with Yoko. All right, you go with Yoko. All right. One more thing. You wouldn't have had Give Peace a Chance without Yoko. You wouldn't have had the bed ins for peace yeah. or all the peace activism with Yoko. I think John would have still been politically active, but not so blatant yeah, as he was with Yoko. Yeah. So. I, can, I, I, I agree with that. All right, Ken, what do you think? It's Paul. It's a chicken and egg situation. We don't get to Yoko if we don't have Paul. 
He creates the artistic space, even the uh, helps John to create the commercial space that gets them there. Um, as I said before, it's an unsettled question. We don't get to 1981. We don't know what happens with their relationship. Um, and given that it was also uh, a quasi-romantic relationship, that does have uh, an effect on a relationship's longevity. So, uh, you know, uh, human relationships are messy businesses, as we all know. <laughs> um, but I, I have to go with Paul McCartney, hands down. It's the greatest songbook in the history of popular music. Um, it continues to reverberate uh, today and will long after, sadly, all of us, even Buddy here, uh, have passed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, two virgins won't be doing that. Yeah. Nobody's listening to it now. Right. Well, you know. True, but I mean, if we, you're we don't know. You know, influence it's the capacity to have an effect on character development or behavior. And well, I, I we're gonna go there. We're gonna, <laughs> go, if we're gonna go there. We're gonna start violating Kit's dictum. For <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get the ruler out, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> fact that does not work hey, well in terms okay. of part of this discussion. <laughs> yep. Well, and and as for me, I mean, boy, is this close. <laughs> this is so close because they were influential in different ways, you know, but I guess I, I would have to say, like Ken just said, you know, the chicken or the egg. Uh, I, I guess I would have to say Paul because Paul was was John's first influence, really helped him to learn about songwriting. And then Yoko certainly then, you know, helped him go in another direction with it. And then, you know, I like what you said, Ken, earlier about creative spaces, creating, you know, that. And I absolutely think she did that, you know, allowed him the space to be really, you know, creative and expand, you know, what he was already doing and take chances. But to get there, you know, he had to learn you know, other skills first. And, and that's probably during his time with Paul. But I mean, this is, this is, boy, this is a tough call. So I, I think uh, this is something that I hope you guys will also continue in the discussion. Um, after, whether you're watching this later or, or listening to it, we want to hear what you have to say. And I have a feeling we're going to be uh, revisiting this topic in the future. There's a, there's a lot to unpack here. So um, I think it's, about time to wrap it up so let's just uh quickly go and uh and if there's uh anything you want to mention that that you're working on so um so dr ken how about you what uh, sure. what's going on uh my new book solid state the story of abbey road and the end of the beatles um will be coming out in october perhaps earlier mm -hmm. um and uh i'm proud to say that yoko plays a positive role in it nice so I, I, I look forward to uh, being able to discuss it with you further. Um, and uh, as usual, I have a lot of other things in the works. I'm being blocked by a cat. Um, <laughs> uh, I think Buddy's ready to go to bed is what this is. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I look forward to further parts of this discussion. For sure. Absolutely. Tom, how about you? Yeah, you know, we've got um, our last two episodes of the of the third season of Two Legs is coming up. Um, mm -hmm. Our second to last uh, is going to involve um, our uh, pinch hitter, Mean Mr. Mayo. Um, this, he did a uh, episode about the, you know, 
rivalry of, of, of Paul and John in their solo career, you know, um, going album by album and, and, and you know, comparing the two. Um, so that should be up um, in a day or two. So looking forward to that. Our last episode, he, uh, David, my co-host, he uh, reviewed the Denny Lane show that he saw in Detroit. And I got to, you know, do a little, little bit more uh, review of the uh, wonderful suitcase uh, that, uh, you know, we're all still talking about, <laughs> you know, so. Um, you're going to have a duffel bag version out later. Yes. This <laughs> Here's my money. Take it, please. Take it. <laughs> hey, connections to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I was also, uh, uh, we said, uh, you know, I said, I mentioned Ed Chen earlier. He had me on his show when they was fab. And we discussed, um, you know, a lot of the songs that uh, Paul, you know, uses for bonus tracks and uh, songs that he leaves off the albums that we uh, discover later on, whether they're a B-side or, or bonus editions uh, for, you know, more editions of albums that he releases. So uh, like the wonderful Egypt Station. So, uh, so that's what's uh, going on right now. Fantastic. And uh, I'm uh, actually later tonight um, on Bumps Radio England, I'm hosting my last uh, Bottomless Soul segment. I had to step down from it because I have a book that I really want to get done by the end of the year, and I've got a lot of projects going, presentations, so I had to cut back on it. So it'll be tonight, if you're listening, if you're watching this live, um, at uh, 11.30 on Bumps Radio England. You can find the link on my Facebook page, uh, and I'm not going away totally on that station. I'll be back for, you know, some guest spots and that kind of thing. Um, and amazingly, I too am on Ed Chen's uh, show <laughs> I uh, uh, when was fab where we talk about mania like fan mania are there any bands or artists that equal what the beatles you know the the sensation the beatles created uh and so we go from list uh to uh, bts it's uh it's really <laughs> it's a it's a long-ranging show so uh the first part is uh, the first part's up this week so again uh go to the when uh, they was fab page or you can check out my facebook page um and uh i think that's uh, i think those are the two main things uh my concert review is up at something else reviews and my columns will be returning very soon so last but not least mr michaels Oh, I hope you you tackle the Bay City Rollers in that show. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they do come up. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, I got a few things in the fire here. On my website, kenmichaelsradio.com, there is a weekly trivia and games page every single week. There's some new trivia question or game. You can win one of nine prizes. This is my new prize here, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. And this is the limited edition deluxe. It's got two CDs in it, a DVD, a Blu-ray, and a 48-page booklet. As we well know, it's got the Dirty Mac in there with John and Yoko, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and Mitch Mitchell doing your blues. There's an alternate take of your blues in here as well. Plus, there's a rehearsal of them doing Revolution, and they have something called a warm-up jam included and uh, you can win this as one of nine prizes on the website also uh last week i had the pleasure of interviewing terry crane terry mm. crane is the author of this book that came out in january called nems 
and the business of selling Beatles merchandise from 1964 to 1966. And uh, it's all about each of the items. There's 150 items that came out here in the United States from the company that Brian Epstein started that did the licensing called Celtab or Celtabe. There's two different pronunciations. It's the stories behind all of the products here and also the history of Brian and the problems he had with that company as well. So that's on my interviews page four page. And later on this week, I'm going to give everyone a chance to win this in a special contest signed by Terry Crane. And then <laughs> on my podcast show, Things We Said Today, we just did a great show with Ken McNabb. And Ken is the author of this new book. And in the end, all about the year 1969, all that the Beatles went through in that year. And um, so that's on Podbean. It's also on iTunes and YouTube, just like our show is. You can catch um, one more thing, my live show of Every Little Thing, which is Wednesday nights on WNHU, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can stream at WNHU.org. It's Beatle music, solo Beatle music, thematic sets, and uh, the latest Beatle news. I know Tom's like a, a regular listener. So uh, if you can, please catch the show this Wednesday at 8 Fantastic. We are all very busy people. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, TalkMoreTalk1. You can email us at TalkMoreSoloTalk at gmail.com. As you can see, we read your comments. We take them seriously. You might just find them on a future episode. So uh, thank you all for tuning in for all your great comments. Please keep them going. We love to hear what you have to say. So from Ken Womack, Ken Michaels, Tom Hanyati, this is Kid O'Toole saying, don't say goodnight. Very good. Happy birthday, Paul. Happy birthday, Paul. And happy birthday, Paul. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs>